This is the American Association of Orthodontists, the Business of Orthodontics podcast, episode 18. Welcome. I'm Pam Paladin. We're presenting two segments on this podcast. Segment one will cover the results of the recent U.S. election and what the future may hold for the AAO and its federal agenda and for AAO members and the patients they serve. Our second segment will feature Dr. Duane McCamish, the president of the AAO, who will brief us on the actions of the Board of Trustees meeting held on November 18th and 19th, 2016. I'm pleased to welcome back to the Business of Orthodox podcast three of our regular guests, Kevin Dillard, AAO's general counsel, Sean Murphy, AAO's associate general counsel, and Kevin O'Neill from Arnold and Porter, the AAO's Legislative Council in Washington, D.C., who joins us via Skype. Gentlemen, good morning. Welcome. Good morning, Pam. Good morning, Pam. And we are a couple of weeks post-election as we record this, and we're going to be discussing results of the election, what it means for the AAO, its federal agenda, and the patients who are served by AAO members. Uh, Kevin O'Neill, let's start with you. It was reported uh, just recently that uh, Vice President-elect Pence said uh, on Sean Hannity's program that the repeal of the Affordable Care Act will, uh, quote, will be the first thing out of the gate. Well, we anticipate that it will be one of the first things out of the gate and probably two of the big signature initiatives of the next Congress and the incoming Trump administration are things of vital importance to the orthodontics profession. Certainly the Affordable Care Act repeal is something we think will be a net positive for the orthodontics profession and uh, perhaps for your patients as well. Uh, it will. We expect that a, a replacement bill will streamline the system, allow people to take more control of their health care decisions, have more control over the funding for that, and serve as a break on the runaway costs of health care uh, right now. The, the other big area is tax reform. It looks like we will see a major tax reform effort probably for the first time since 1986 or since 2001 under uh, President Bush. And that, too, should have a very positive effect for AAO members, uh, be it the people who uh, run their own small business as an orthodontics practice or uh, those who are in other situations. Uh, there are a number of things in tax reform that should be very good for uh, the profession. In what ways will it be better for small businesses? Well, I think uh, the, the first and foremost way that it's going to be good for small businesses is that if you uh, lower rates and you put more money in people's pocket. Uh, that money is going to circulate to, to you all. We all know that uh, plenty of orthodontists have told me uh, over the years about how easy it is for their patients to delay the decision to have orthodontic work until uh, their finances improve. And so I think it's reasonable to think that as the economy improves, uh, as tax reform puts more money back in the pocket of uh, middle-class taxpayers, uh, that they will tur turn and use some of that money uh, to improve their own health care. And so I think that that's a good thing. We expect to see several uh, small business-friendly uh, provisions pass that uh, may make it easier to file your taxes, may provide uh, more preferential treatment for uh, continued large capital purchases in your offices, and you know have lower rates, which again, we think is, is fairly important. Kevin O'Neill, have you been through a transition before in D.C., and is this one similar to anything that you've experienced before? Sure. This has uh, certainly been through several now, and uh, this one is going to be unique for, for several reasons. Of course, Donald Trump is unlike anyone that's been elected president in our lifetime. He's really the 
most populist president elected since uh, Andrew Jackson in the 1800s, and he is going to do things his own way. We see that right now in the first month of the transition, whereas other presidents sort of kept out of sight and did all their vetting in a very private way when they were considering who to appoint to their cabinet and they had things that a very disciplined rollout campaign. Uh, Donald Trump is doing things. He's literally walking the potential nominees by the cameras every day at Trump Tower, having them come in and come out and allowing them to make the case for why they should be secretary of this or secretary of that in front of the cameras, uh, sort of giving him a chance to gauge public reaction to some of his potential nominees. Uh, he's spending a lot of time face-to-face or on the phone with these folks. Uh, he's not necessarily going through the same vetting process as his predecessors. And then when he finds somebody, he's he's making a decision. So normally we would see folks uh, lay out sort of the top positions first, Treasury, Secretary of State, uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, Attorney General. Those might be the first nominees. Now, Attorney General's been named, and uh, just uh, uh, last night and this morning, we've confirmed who the Treasury nominee will be, but Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense are still very much in play. Meanwhile, he's already named some people lower down in the cabinet, like transportation and education, that normally would wait much later to have been named. So I think we're going to see a very unique process. His process probably in uh, means that one or two people that he nominates won't get through the confirmation process because they may not have gotten the degree of vetting that a more traditional process would have looked at before they go to the Senate. Uh, but he's certainly picking uh, he's picking people that probably give uh, his base reason to be happy with their selection and also gives mainline Republicans who are hesitant to vote for uh, Trump in this election should give them great comfort with some of the picks that he's already made. Kevin, uh, notwithstanding the fact that Teddy Roosevelt fans might take issue with your Andrew Jackson quip, going back to uh, the ACA repeal, what does that? What's that going to do to the AO's raise bill? What are we looking at? Yeah, well, look, it's a fair point on Teddy uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, you know, the Raise Act, I think, will have a great chance to uh, be a part of the discussion in the Affordable Care Act repeal and replace movement. Uh, certainly. The RAISE Act is itself a response to the Affordable Care Act, which unduly limited the use of flexible spending accounts. And so uh, when you repeal uh, the Affordable Care Act, you take away that limit. You go back to where we were before, which was people could really do whatever they wanted. Most people capped at 5000 But we, we still see a couple of problems there. We'd like larger families to be able to put away larger amounts, and we'd like people to be able to roll over their funds year to year so that they're not essentially encouraged to uh, engage in wasteful uh, healthcare spending at the end of the year instead of saving up for larger purchases. We're pretty optimistic that uh, a lot of those things will get uh, a very strong reception in the next Congress and that as they look to give people more responsibility over their health care decisions and how they use their health care funds, uh, the RAISE Act will make a lot of sense. Uh, the lead sponsor of the RAISE Act, Steve Stivers, a Republican from the uh, Columbus, Ohio area, uh, was just last week, uh, I'm sorry, two weeks ago, elected chairman of the National Republican Congressional Committee, which is the campaign arm of uh, the House Republicans. And so essentially, we have a leader of the House Republican Party who is now the lead sponsor of Ray's. I think that uh, that only enhances the chances of that uh, getting serious consideration in the in the process. Kevin O'Neill, looking at our new and younger members, what do you see the environment looking like for higher education reform, uh, decreasing student debt, looking at those issues? 
Yeah, that's a more difficult thing to see. Uh, President-elect Trump did not have a lot of time spent on the stump talking about higher education. The person that he selected for Secretary of Education is a K-12 expert, not a higher ed expert. Uh, we do still expect to see that uh, there'll be a higher ed bill that comes out in the next two years, but we're not sure where the president-elect stands on those issues about how to make college more affordable. We think he'll look to cut some of the regulatory red tape that has uh, led to sort of the expansive growth of bureaucracy at universities, uh, saying that that might be a way to reduce costs, uh, but we're not sure what he's going to do about about uh, student loans. Certainly, he's a guy, and most of his cabinet are going to be people who financed graduate degrees uh, and have that experience of getting an MBA, a JD, or a uh, uh, or a medical degree. He's already appointed, you know, one doctor to his cabinet. We believe a second doctor is uh, imminently about to be named to uh, his cabinet. And so I think that that those might be people that we can work with that would bode well uh, on those issues. But it, unlike tax reform and healthcare reform, it's harder to know exactly where he stands on that. So going over some of the cabinet picks that uh, the president-elect has already made. Which ones are you most excited about? Which ones do you think would be kind of uh, great picks going forward, since I know a lot still in limbo, if you will? Well, I think uh, let's start with the things that matter to your members uh, first, and that is the Health and Human Services Secretary. He's picked Dr. Tom Price, a conservative Republican member of Congress from the Atlanta area. Uh, Dr. Price uh, is an orthopedic surgeon who went on to become the first Republican uh, majority leader in the state house in Georgia at a time when Georgia was moving from uh, Democratic control to Republican control. He's uh, served five or six very successful terms in Congress, including being the uh, chairman of the Republican Study Committee, which is the conservative wing of the uh, party in, in the House. Uh, and then he's been chairman of the uh, Budget Committee. And uh, Dr. Price several years ago came out with a blueprint for repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act. A lot of that blueprint got picked up by Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, in what's called his A Better Way plan uh, that Republicans campaigned on this past year. And in terms of having an architect in the administration who understands what's needed in the nuts and bolts of uh, repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act, you really could not have picked a better quarterback uh, than Dr. Price. Dr. Price has been someone uh, we've met with, someone the AAO PAC has supported for years, uh, someone I think we'll have a chance to have a good relationship with in his position as HHS uh, secretary. You know, the, the, the I think the initial response to uh, the cabinet nominees has been fairly positive. And again, most of the other ones don't directly impact us. I'm happy if you have you want to talk about specific ones to to delve into that. Kevin, I'm interested in in your take on how the culture in Washington is going to change. We all know Trump uh, campaigned on draining the swamp. You being there around it, what's going to happen? You know, it's interesting because no matter who Trump ends up nominating, you get sort of uh, claims that, oh, he says he's going to drain the swamp, but this person's been in Washington too long. And then, uh, for example, then he, the two people he nominated this morning, his Commerce Secretary and his Treasury Secretary, you know, the charge is, oh, they they've never been to Washington. They've never had a job in government. How can they how can they actually serve in such important positions? So he's a little bit uh he's gonna face criticism no matter who he selects. Uh and I think he's he's shown that he's gonna pick people that he's comfortable with. He's shown in his consideration of folks that he's he's comfortable with people who have been uh, prior critics of his. 
it's not just going to uh, appoint the people who stood by him in the earliest, uh, darkest days of his campaign when he was, uh, uh, you know, someone that people thought didn't have have much of a chance. He has banned lobbyists from the transition process, uh, which I certainly understand why he's done that. Uh, Some of that has gone underground. Lobbyists are serving as informal advisors instead of formal advisors. Uh, He's talking about having a ban, keeping people from working in industry for five years after serving in his administration. That will have a couple of effects. One, it will keep a lot of lobbyists out of his business. Uh, The people who do go into the administration may come out and be unregistered lobbyists, which is more a problem than being a registered lobbyist. But it also may mean that he has a lot more people who uh, come to work for him in appointed positions who are financially independent and can afford to take a government position without worry about what do they do on the other side of that. You see that in some of his cabinet appointments, and uh, the question is whether or not he'll follow through on that uh, down the line. So I think there'll be some draining of the swamp, but I think the swamp is too big to be drained in full by one president. Kevin O'Neill, thank you so much for sharing your perspective and wisdom with us today, and hope you'll uh, you'll let us uh, loop back with you again in a few weeks as the transition continues, and we'll see uh, how this could affect AAO members and patients. Thanks, Kevin. I look forward to talking to you guys. We appreciate Bye. it. What makes me smile? Cheeseburgers make me smile. My kids make me smile. And I like to smile, thanks to my orthodontist. My dentist said go to a specialist. Orthodontists have the training, the experience, and the treatment options like clear aligners and braces. For my best smile. Now, my smile makes me smile. For your best smile, find an AAO orthodontist at mylifemysmile.org. The American Association of Orthodontists. I'm pleased to welcome AAO President Dr. Duane McCamish back to the Business of Orthodontics podcast. This segment is a first for this podcast, recapping a Board of Trustees meeting. Our listeners may not be aware, but this is a very active board. Uh, formal board meetings are scheduled quarterly, along with many, many, many other commitments as uh, you perform your duties on behalf of AAO members. Uh, Dr. McCamish, the AAO Board of Trustees did something new for its November 2016 meeting. Uh, If you would please explain to our members what that was and and why this step was taken. You know, Pam, it it was a first for the American Association of Orthodontics Board to have a virtual meeting. We have lots of our committees and councils that we ask to do that as well. And due to the length of the board meetings, normally it is not something, and due to the number of items that are discussed, it's not something that has been felt in the past to always be possible. But we found it a very, very good way to have a board meeting and one in which with the proper preparation that it could be done very efficiently. Was the virtual meeting a success? And and if so, do you expect that this will be repeated? You know, Pam, it was very much a success. I don't think there's any of the trustees or individuals on the call that didn't feel that way. And I do think it'll be repeated because there there are positives. There's also a few negatives that come out of having a virtual meeting, but the positives far outweigh the negatives. I think first, it's a very efficient way to have a meeting because a lot of times when you're in a face-to-face meeting, a lot of things get repeated that were already said before. And when you do it virtually, 
you have a lot of those comments in front of you, and, and they're not repeated, and it just seemed more efficient in that regard. It definitely saved time for all our trustees and officers in their personal lives, and in doing that, I think it makes it even more doable to serve in the capacity as a volunteer leader because you have the whole weekend afterwards that you can spend with your family. And of course, there is some cost saving, the costs that are incurred in traveling and having a face-to-face meeting in St. Louis, that expense was saved in having the virtual meeting. It really is just a good way to make it easier to take and to not only serve our profession, but to take less time away from your practice and more time to be with your family and friends and other activities. So I I really consider the positives really, really being that we lost no efficiency and we were able to conduct all our business. If we looked at negatives, I think we all like the face-to-face interaction that occurs with a face-to-face meeting. There the expressions, the the friendships, uh, the business that's conducted. I think we miss a little bit of the little side discussions that occur off to the side and that even might might have an effect upon how you feel about an issue, the little things to the side that are really important that you might not have seen before you got to the point of the meeting. These are really the main, the, the preparation time, was a period of time that that did require some extra preparation, not only on behalf of the trustees, but the AAO staff, because they had some preparation time to give. Some of the equipment, some of the internet issues that we had to deal with before we actually had the meeting, those were solved. And that will make it easier in the future to have virtual board of trustees meetings. And that brings us right into the 21st century. (laughs) It does. And it's also what we're asking our councils and what we're asking our other committees to do. So it's, it's only logical then that we ask them to do it, that the Board of Trustees be doing it as well. Let's talk about some of the actions that came out of the November Board of Trustees meeting, Dr. McCamish. Uh, I believe a couple things that were on your agenda uh, had to do with two studies one relative to the member website and the other one regarding research among consumers. Both of those issues were important because if we want our members to use the member website, then they have to have the easiest time possible in navigating through that website, finding the information that they're looking for in a timely fashion. We want it to be as user-friendly as we can be. And in order to do that, we have to identify our weaknesses, our our strengths, and we have to then, after we identify those, we have to solve those and make sure that, that the website that we have out there for our members to use, that it is the very best possible. And the consumer research, what's, uh, what's going to happen with that? Well, this was, as you know, our, our consumer, uh, our advocacy program commonly called the CAMP, the acronym has been in, in existence now for 10 years. And and it only makes sense to uh, have the assurance that our members are receiving the best that, the, that we can possibly receive from those CAP funds, uh, that, that we evaluate it and make sure that, that the message that's being delivered is being delivered to the right people in the most effective way. You know, the message itself has changed, and we know that. Before, our message was to define the benefits of orthodontic treatment, and also the orthodontic specialist 
him as an individual that has had more training, two to three years more than a general practitioner. Well, now we want to be even more specific. Our members are expecting us to take and have a message out there to tell the difference between an orthodontist and a general practitioner. And so it's only logical then that we would conduct a research specific to the CAP message and make sure that it is current to what our objectives are for all of our membership. And we'll look forward to the results of both of those studies. The board also discussed the availability of graduate medical education funding for orthodontic programs. Dr. McCamish, what came out of that discussion? GME is an acronym that many of our members will will will, will have heard before. And as you said, it stands for Graduate Medical Education Funding. And this is intended to fund graduate medical education. And uh, we found out, we, the board has found out some information that we didn't even know. And we found out that this, these funds are not available for existing programs, and they're only available for startup programs. Now, there are a lot of startup programs that are occurring. And these startup programs sometimes are motivated by GME funding. And so it, it really only seems fair that this be looked into and find out if there's not some way that existing programs would benefit from the GME funding as well. The GME funding sort of, it sort of goes into another area, Pam, that we're working on, and that's our workforce study. And our workforce study is, is a study that's being used that is designed to determine, first of all, quality of care for the consumer, to make sure that the consumers are receiving the quality of care that they need. But then it's also designed to look at the future needs of our orthodontic graduates. And that, to me, equals jobs and practice opportunities. So that, that workforce study is going to be looking at, at at our membership that's coming out, are the residents that are looking for opportunities out there, and are those areas out there for them to go into, or are there underserved areas? And so this is information that we, we don't have and we need, and that coupled with GME money may have an effect upon what the government considers in providing available for, for medical, for orthodontic programs. Sounds like a very complicated issue. It's definitely complicated. And there was a report that was given at the 2016 IDEA meeting. And we are looking at that. The Board of Trustees will be reviewing that. The leadership and the other members of the American Association will be made aware of some of the specifics of GME funding and how we can go forward from where we are today. And I'm glad, our, I'm, I'm sure our members are glad to know that the AAO is, is working on this uh, on their behalf as well. The board agenda included some discussion about an independent specialty recognition board. Uh, could you provide us some background on why this was discussed and, and uh, any of the actions that the AAO will be taking? You know, Pam, this is, this is another complicated issue. <laughs> If we and and you know if we I think to understand how this happened, our members need to know how it all started because it it all started in North Carolina with the bleaching and the, the whitening uh, decision that came down with the FTC involvement involvement and they ruled against the state of North Carolina Dental Board as far as being able to control who bleached and who whitened teeth. 
And then this, this spilled over to Texas. And in Texas, there was a lawsuit against the Texas Dental Board of Examiners. And it was filed by the American Board of Dental Specialties. And it was filed on behalf of three entities, the Association of Oral Facial Pain, Oral Medicine, Implantology, and Dental Anesthesiology. And those entities filed a lawsuit against Texas Dental Board for their right to advertise as specialties. This this went to the highest level in the state of Texas, and the AAO got involved by filing an amicus brief recently. But it was it was upheld in the state of Texas. So then it goes on to the American Dental Association, and the American Dental Association by our by the ADA Code of Ethics. There were a couple of things in there that were running counter to how things were happening on the state level. The one specifically that affects this in the Code of Ethics, it says that as a member of the American Dental Association, that you could only advertise as a specialist if you are one of the nine approved specialties as recognized by the American Dental Association. So if you advertise in Texas and Texas approved it, you were violating the ADA Code of Ethics. But in the state of Texas, their law said you could. So then there was a conflict between the ADA Code of Ethics and Texas. And Texas had the trump card. They were the ones that they could advertise there. So it was they were out of compliance with the ADA Code of Ethics. Well, Resolution 65 we looked at the ADA Code of Ethics, and they said that unless it was approved by a state, you could only advertise as one of those nine specialties. They also changed it before. If you were one of the nine specialties, the ADA Code of Ethics was such that you could only advertise, um, you could only practice in the exclusive practice of that specialty. And that was changed also to not say exclusive practice of that specialty. So so the FTC has gotten into looking at dental specialties. And as a result, the ADA is looking at that. And they have formed two task force. One task force, uh, Brent Larson will serve on. And it's a task force to look at specialty recognition. It will meet on December the 4th. And the other task force was formed by the the Council on Dental Education and Licensure, the acronym CDEL, and they will meet in February 27th and 28th of 2017. And each one of them are looking at the ways in which the ADA recognizes specialties. So that gets to what you asked me, Pam. What you asked me is, what are what's this coming out that with the dental specialty group? Well. At a dental specialty meeting that we had a couple of months ago in Chicago, it was suggested that the ADA, that the AAO and the other specialties look into forming our own specialty recognition body. And that is exactly what we're doing. We're looking at forming our own specialty recognition body in conjunction with working with CODA and the ADA and organized dentistry. But to take it away from the ADA House of Delegates, which is really where the situation has a problem with the FTC, and that goes back to North Carolina, because that's controlled all by dentists controlling their own specialty and their own organizations. So the bottom line 
is that in order to take and to ensure quality of care, patient safety, and to ensure that patients are receiving the very best possible treatment possible, the AAO is looking at, in conjunction with the other eight dental specialties, forming their own dental specialty recognition group. This is a work in progress. The Board of Trustees approved funding to go forward with this. Each of the other eight dental specialties uh, have approved the same or are in the process of approving the same. It, it is complicated. It is something that each of our members' trustees can explain more in person, one-on-one, -on -one, and probably much better than what I've done in rambling about like I've done this morning. I don't think you've rambled a bit. I've, I found it fascinating. This goes back to North Carolina, goes back to Texas, and then ADA action at their recent uh, annual session. So is the, is the change in the ethics, the code of ethics that ADA approved, does that mean then that an orthodontist who has been practicing, you know, as a specialist in, in scope of practice is, is only orthodontics, their ADA code of ethics would now allow an orthodontist to do some general dentistry services as long as they they can still call themselves orthodontists as long as the bulk of what they do is orthodontics? Yeah, the answer is sort of. Okay. Um, it does exactly mean what you said. It means that our members, and we know we have members who have graduated who who are doing some general dentistry on the side. And they're having to in order to take and to sort of make ends meet. And it makes that it makes it now so that they are not practicing outside the code of ethics of the ADA. Now, the, the, the really certification of whether you're an orthodontist or not really should be based upon your education. If you really think about it, if you received a diploma from a CODA approved graduate program in orthodontics, you are an orthodontist, regardless of how you practice and what you practice. Because you can even nitpick, you can say, well, is using a laser orthodontics, is putting a tag in orthodontics. There are a lot of marginal procedures that are done every day in many orthodontic offices that before were by the strict code of the ADA's code of ethics they would be unethical. They would be practicing outside the code of ethics and hence be considered unethical by the current standards. So, uh, yes, you have to practice enough to maintain proficiency in that specialty, but you can also do other things and not be outside the ADA code of ethics. Great. Well, I'm sure this will be a very, very long-term project for the ADA, the AAO, and all of the other specialty organizations and, and uh, kind of sorting everything through. Now, something else that uh, was discussed at the November Board of Trustees meeting was um, had to do with dental support programs, included uh, AAO membership in the Association of Dental Support Organizations, as well as a partnership program for dental support organizations. Can you give us uh, some background on on this and uh, report on the actions that were authorized by by the board at its meeting. Pam, I'll be glad to. And again, this is sort of a complicated issue, and it's one that you almost have to know a little bit of background. The, the old saying that times are changing, uh, times are not changing, times have truly changed. Uh, in a recent blog from one of our emerging leaders, 
who has been out of practice 10 years and less, it was revealed this individual uh, was head of a DSO. And he said, a lot of people think that DSOs are just made of the younger individuals that are getting out of school. Well, in fact, that's not true. And I might back up a minute. A DSO is a dental support organization. They are independent entities that have that have sprung up that are employing dental and orthodontic and different specialties, but dental and, of course, in our situation, orthodontics. But this individual said, he said, you know, a lot of individuals who work for DSOs are older practitioners that are working maybe one day a week or one to two days a month. There are a lot of females that are working that have children and only want to work one to two days a week or one to two, three, four days a month. There are a lot of doctors who don't like the business aspect of of running a private practice. And those of us that are in private practice knows what that know what that means. And there's some orthodontic faculty out there that are working for DSOs that are maybe trying to supplement the orthodontic salary uh, in teaching. Uh, and then there's there's doctors out there who really want to have a private practice but have gotten out of school with such debt that, that right now it's not practical for them to do. So we have we know that we have one out of four of graduates that are five years or less in practice that are working for a DSO. So we have a growing segment of our membership that are grow, that are working for DSOs. So a, a DSO has a national group, and they have an association of dental support organizations, and they have created a category of association partners, and we have been invited to be a member of that category. We, the American Association of Orthodontists, and it's nothing but just positives to be part of it because we will. it will uh, allow us to provide a forum for the members that are part of DSOs. They are our members. They are orthodontists. They are graduates of accredited programs. And we want them to be included into the AAO. And it will let them look and see the value of being a member of the AAO. It will also allow us to be more aware of their needs. But the board did approve the AAO becoming a member organization of the Association of Dental Supports. And in that, we will receive two complimentary registrations to their annual summit, which they have, which is which it really includes 180 different DSOs and industry partners is what they call some of the DSOs of different sizes. So it, it will allow us a seat at the table. You might say they they want our logo and a link to our AAO member website. They'll put it on their website. Uh, they will supply us with their membership roster, which includes full and associate members of DSO, which with all their contact information, which is really important that we would like to be aware of those those potential and, and members that are part of that. And it will also allow us to be included in a quarterly newsletter distribution with the latest member and industry news. So it it, it is something that the board approved. Uh, In return for that, uh, usually there's a $6,000 fee that's associated with their association partner category. And in return for that, uh, we will give them two complimentary registrations to the AAO session. We invite them already, but they will be 
re-invited to our DSO, our advocacy conference meeting in Washington, D.C. We've done that for the last three or four years because we had a DSO task force formed and we reach out to them and they come and we discuss common issues and then they go on the hill and advocate for common issues that, that are affecting our profession. And we also will uh, give them a meeting space at the site of our AAO annual session and include them in the distribution of AAO print and email publications for two of their individuals. And, uh, and and also, they'll have access to our AAO uh, member website. So this is a win-win for both of us because what it will do is it will allow us to take and to reach out and to include orthodontists that are employed by DSOs and to learn how we can work with them better to take mutual and mutually benefit our profession. CTEC uh, is the Committee on Technology, and uh, they brought some recommendations to the board that were approved. Uh, one had to do with a way to report non-orthodontists who present themselves to the public as orthodontists. Another was on exploring options to better differentiate orthodontists from general dentists. And the final one creates a new track for the doctor's scientific program at future annual sessions. Could you give us some uh, some information about all of these things that CTEC brought forward? Yeah, these were great recommendations that CTEC did bring forward. And the first is to take and to create an easy-to-use mechanism that facilitates for our members to report non-orthodontists who are misrepresenting themselves as orthodontists to the public. So CTEC brought forward with the thought that we need to make this easier. The, the mechanism is in place now, but it's not readily visible. It's not readily user-friendly for our members to access. And so there is a perception among our, among our membership that really nothing is being done in regard to this. And, of course, nothing can be done if it's not reported. And once it's reported, then we can take action and we can go forward to the state boards and report the inappropriate representation of individuals that are purporting to be specialists when they're really not. The second initiative that they brought forward was how to better differentiate the orthodontist from the general dentist when it comes to listings on websites and advertising orthodontic services as opposed to orthodontist and there was a, a committee of te technology feels that this is something that the AAO through CTEC and COC that we need to have a program in place to educate online professional directors that there is a difference between the orthodontist and the dentist who do orthodontics. So this is a second initiative that they brought forward which as you know Pam is, is, really, is really important because that's how that's how a lot of decisions are made by by the prospective patient. They don't they don't look in a phone book anymore. They yeah. uh, they go online and they bring up information that way. Then the third recommendation, Pam, that uh, CTEC brought forward was that we create a branded tech talk track in the doctor scientific program at every annual session. And they would like for this, we've always had some technology information, but it's sort of been scattered, 
scattered around throughout the program. And they would like to have two dedicated, specific half-day programs specifically de designed uh, for tech talk. And this is to, uh, to go along with their tech talk blog. Uh, and, and it would be developed by each annual session planning committee in partnership with CTEC, with the chair of tech involved and the members of tech providing the expertise on technology and, and their suggestions on what should be on and included in each one of those programs. So it really, it really is the smart thing to do because that is their expertise. That is the field that they know. And they feel like that by putting it all together in one track, that it will be more effective for our members and they would benefit more rather than have it to take and go to each program in a piecemeal fashion. That sounds like a great idea and uh, something that people can look forward to at future annual sessions. And speaking of which, uh, I believe the board also approved a new advisory group relative to annual sessions. Can you give us the details and, and how you see this benefiting AAO members? Anytime that, that you go to an AAO annual session, the annual session planning committee that has put that meeting together always tries to provide the most recent and the most current information that they can. But it's not always possible to have all expertise in all areas. And so this is an advisory group that will help advise annual session planning committees in the future on developing cutting-edge technology or delivery methods that might be out there, uh, current practice management issues that would be of, of uh, benefit for our members to know, identifying specific speakers that would be the best to deliver that information. And also the way in which the audience would best like to receive the information. So th this is an advisory group of eight individuals. And I might mention, I might just mention Scott Conley because Scott Conley uh, served as COE chair and he was chairman of an ad hoc committee that came back with the recommendations that have now been approved by the board to appoint this expertise-based annual session advisory committee. And, and this in itself is going to be on a three-year trial basis, and we'll just see how it works. You know, you don't want so many people involved that decisions don't get made, but you definitely don't want to have your head in the sand when there's other people around that, are, that have great thoughts and can work in an advisory capacity. And that's really the purpose of this. It's, it's just going to be a win-win for all our members when they attend an annual session. That's great. I think that'll give our members a lot to look forward to at uh, all future annual sessions. And we appreciate your recap of, of this uh, very first virtual Board of Trustees meeting that was held in November 2016. And uh, many, many thanks to you, Dr. McCamish, for joining us on this podcast. Thanks, Pam. Thanks for uh, allowing me to be part of it. I enjoyed it. And that's a wrap for Episode 18 of the AAO's The Business of Orthodontics podcast. Many thanks to AAO President Dr. Duane McCamish. Thanks as well to Kevin Dillard, AAO's General Counsel, Sean Murphy, AAO's Associate General Counsel, and Kevin O'Neill from the firm of Arnold & Porter, AAO's Legislative Counsel in Washington, D.C. Join us for future podcasts as AAO experts explore questions and issues that are important to you in your orthodontic practice. 
If you have subject areas you'd like addressed on a future podcast, please email them to info at aaortho.org or call 800-424-2841. This is Pam Paladin. Thanks for listening to the Business of Orthodontics podcast, episode 18.